we've been told that we should be ready at all times, <clears throat> excuse me, to share how our faith has changed our lives. And Pastor Matthew asked me to share my story today. A few moments ago, we sang, my refuge is in the Lord. And that was not always my story. I was born and raised in a suburb of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Although there were times of childish fun, our home was often marked with chaos and deeply scarred with abuse, with addiction, with mental illness, with open infidelity, and eventually divorce. I felt such humiliation and such insecurity. <clears throat> and I became very rebellious. I attended Catholic schools and I saw so much there that didn't make sense that along with what I saw in the rest of life, I wanted nothing to do with any Jesus or God. My ticket out of that mess, I believed was excelling. And indeed, I excelled in school, graduated at the top of my class in high school, the very top of my class in college, and came to Los Angeles in 1978 without knowing a single person. One of many job offers because I believed here was where I could accomplish my life goal, my then life goal, which was to be president of a Fortune 500 company by the time I was 40. And I progressed very, very rapidly as I pursued performance with abandon, demanded perfection of myself and others, and churned through assistance. Along the way, one night in the era of John Travolta and the song Staying Alive, I met Lisa who eventually said yes to marrying me in a disco. <laughs> I met her in a disco, she said yes later to marrying me <laughs> because she saw another side of me. I continued to regress rapidly until one day at the age of 26 after a very tense, intense confrontation with a colleague, I just started to cry. And then these negative thoughts just poured into me for, for no reason, then panic and anxiety, and I, I wasn't able to think clearly. And this went on for a couple of days, and then suicidal ideas came into my mind. The professionals I consulted as I continued to thrash and decline said, it'd be best if I checked into a psychiatric hospital. And Lisa said one of the most difficult days of her life was when she dropped me at that psychiatric hospital. I participated in the hospital activities. I took the medications, um, therapies, all those things. I came out, the symptoms were diminished, and things quickly became great again. Because the company warmly welcomed me back, Lisa became pregnant, and I continue now for my career trajectory. It, it, it just renewed, it was back on track again until the next year. And I felt when we were visiting families, some of those same depressive symptoms coming about. And my younger brother, 
said, why don't you turn to Jesus? And I said, no, John, seriously, that's not the way. He said, no, I'm serious. And I said, I am serious. And he said, why don't you do this? Why don't you pray that if God is real, he'll make himself known to you? And why don't you use those research skills of yours to examine the historicity of Jesus Christ? And I said, if you will stop bugging me, I will do that. That night, in the room that I was sleeping in, above the bed was a cross. In the moon, for reasons I don't know, but maybe I do, shone for what seemed to be hours on that cross. And I, I prayed just as my brother suggested, if you're real God, make that known to me. And in fact, the depression was abbreviated. And I gave God the credit. I did that research project and I was shocked at the compelling evidence for the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I became a Jesus follower. Lisa and I came here to Lake Avenue Church. I was baptized. We joined an adult class, a small group, and I began to see what it was like to be loved and supported in a community. And I also began to see that the life Jesus lived was very different from the life I was living. But the underlying issue had not been resolved. And over the next five years, four times, I had multi-month severe clinical depressions with uncontrolled crying, with panic, anxiety, with suicidal ideas, with cognitive impairment. And it caused, as you can imagine, chaos at home and in the office. And finally, my boss came to me and said, this can't continue. You are so disruptive. When you're great, you're great. But when you're not, this just can't continue. So I went to my doctor and he said, because this was now seven depressions, he said, we have tried now every medication that we have. There's one thing left, ECT, which is electroconvulsive therapy where they attach electrodes to your brain and send electrical shocks through it because it helps, it's actually real, it helps rearrange the brain chemistry re-resettles it, so to speak. There's some memory loss, but anyway, he said, that's what I should do. A few days later, Lisa and I were hosting a friendship feast with our Galilean class, and one of the women there sold pharmaceuticals, and she said, have you tried this new drug? And I said, oh. So I went to my doctor, and I still remember he said, there is absolutely no clinical evidence that that drug works with rapid cycling. And I said, well, given the choices on the table, why don't we try it? Will that drug combined with the lithium I was taking, a combination that works with a tiny percentage, as it turns out, of people with bipolar disorder, it worked for me for 30 years until this past summer when I had a bipolar incident because of COVID. But 30 years. Now, in scripture, we read that trials and suffering produce character. And indeed, I believe God used the breaking and restoring the, the efforts that, that I was making to come to know and understand Jesus Christ and how he lived, the love and the support of Lisa and others to bring dramatic changes in my life. Um, I gave up my career idol and the workaholism, and instead I prioritized my marriage 
in my family, growing in my faith, and in time, serving. And here at Lake Avenue in different seasons, I served in early childhood, in children's, in middle school, mentoring young dads, in Galilean leadership, and then as a marriage mentor. At work, I was able to put behind me my reputation for having the shortest term employee in the history of the company. Now, we hired a person. In the morning, I very deliberately explained my expectations, and she didn't come back from lunch. <laughs> it was only a few years later that I was literally fired. I was removed from a senior management position and reassigned because I was too soft and too concerned about people. And indeed, I was very concerned as time went on. And I poured into colleagues and had the opportunity to do ministry with them and for them. Ended up leading literally dozens of colleagues into the community where we did weekly mentoring of inner city middle school students. We did financial literacy training for high school students. And we worked in the homeless field, so to speak, um, both in serving food and also doing recreation for, for children. Over time, my passion changed from business to caring for those who were in need and distressed. And I, and I thought I heard God saying first very quietly and then more loudly, I want more than leftovers. So I left the corporate world at 58 for a period of redirection. And in one of the first major projects, Alan Geranik and I visited a number of churches in Southern California, and we heard about Rooted. And we were very impressed with what we heard. Brought it back to the ministry council, strongly encouraged them to look at it, and they tabled it. And I've wondered these past seven years why. And of course, now I know it was for such a time as this with Pastor Matthew's leadership. I am still a work in progress and, and have strongholds and, and, and strongholds I'm working with, but I will say this. I believe with all my heart that I am grateful for the sufferings and for the trials and for the opportunity to see what a difference that following Jesus Christ can make in your life. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word? There are two short scriptures today. 1 John 3, 8. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. And then Matthew 16, 17 to 18. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. This is the word of God.
1990, August 2nd. It was the day of the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait. And some of you are old enough to remember that day and the event that, events that followed. But my wife, Joanne, has very vivid memories of that day because she was a little girl growing up in Kuwait. And she remembers the bombers uh, coming and, and she was a refugee in the Arabian desert in multiple different places. Eventually, she was rescued like many others and here <laughs> in one piece. Um, but soon after Iraqis invaded Kuwait, the U.S. led the U.N. Co coalition and you, prob uh, you probably remember the Desert Shield first and the Desert Storm second. There is a series of military, major military operations. And in seven months, America, obviously the UN coalition, was successful in getting Saddam Hussein and his troops out and, the U uh, and Kuwait got its sovereignty back. Now, I lived in Kuwait for a short time. I worked there as an engineer. And most of the Middle Eastern country, if you go, the Americans are not really that looked upon in favorable lights. They don't mind Americans, but they don't really like Americans. But Kuwait is very different. If you go to Kuwait and if you say that you're an American, you have a hero's welcome. They love you, they adore you, and they always say that America came to save us. America came to save us. Now, if you, have, if you ask America, that's true. We went to save them and we did save Kuwait. But we also had a major, a bigger mission there. Right? Because America always needs a strategic military base in the Middle East. It is very important for us to have a reconnaissance missions because uh, for the right reasons. We need to be on top of world affairs and there are a lot of things and Islamic terrorism is one of them, is brewing in the Middle East. So it is important for America to have some understanding uh, and some base in the Middle East. So that was also accomplished, and America has a military base in Kuwait there, and they are welcome there, they are, they are amazing. I've, be, I've been to that military base multiple times. So the reason I'm saying this is that one mission can have multiple purposes from which angle you are looking at. Now, if you ask us, I mean, if, if somebody, if you, if you ask us, yes. <laughs> uh, why did Jesus come to this world? The answer is pretty clear. Jesus came to this world to save us from the clutches of sin. He came, he died for us, and with his blood, you know, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost and to give his blood 
a ransom for many, right? Give his life a ransom for many. So Jesus came to save us. It's completely true from our perspective. Now, if you ask God, why did Jesus go to the world? Why did Jesus come to the world? The answer is slightly different. Of course, saving us was one of the main reasons. But the verse which we read today, 1 John 3, 8 says, the Son of God appeared to destroy the work of the devil. Oh, we are not even mentioned. <laughs> we are not even in the picture. God had a very, very different agenda. A bigger mission was being accomplished in that coming. The Son of Man, the Son of God came to destroy the work of the devil. See, if we read the Bible really as a spiritual document, God speaking to us, there are a lot of things like Beth Pass said today that will make us very uncomfortable, particularly those who have been in the church for a long time. And we in the Western world look at the Bible as our moral document. In so many ways, the foundation of the Western civilization. We expect the pastors to stand up on a stage every Sunday morning and to give us some morality lectures and how to be good and how not to be bad and how to love each other, how to have unity. These are all wonderful, fantastic. But the Bible has a very, very different worldview. It talks about, not only about God and the rooted topic this week, there is an enemy. There is an enemy, and many people who believe in God cringe when we talk about the devil and Satan and the enemy. Oh, oh no, Matthew, look, come on. You have a PhD in theology. Don't be silly. Don't talk about that kind of stuff. That's all for old-timers. No, that is not really it. So, let me bring you C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis, obviously, and people who don't believe in the Bible believe C.S. Lewis because he's a smart guy, right? <laughs> so, seriously, seriously. C.S. Lewis is arguably smarter than anybody else in the room. So I'm going to read a quote from Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis said this, enemy-occupied territory, that is what this world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed, you might say landed in disguise, and is calling us all to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. The biblical worldview assumes that there is an invisible war happening right now, right here on planet Earth. There is a cosmic warfare between God, who is the personification of all that is good, and Satan or the devil, who is the personification of all that is evil. 
And there is this cosmic warfare is raging in this world, and we are caught in the crossfires. And it is an inevitable reality we have to face. The Bible begins with Genesis chapter 1 to 3. You see where the war, war really starts. God created a perfect world. But the world in which we live is far from being perfect. Because there was an enemy that infiltrated this world with our own allegiance. He occupied this territory. The earth. Now, in the New Testament, the beginning of the New Testament, we see God organizing a covert operation. Jesus came and established a strategic military base in this planet, and it is called the church. The church is the military base God has established for the reconnaissance of the enemy's kingdom. As C.S. Lewis said, we live right now in the enemy-occupied territory, and we are given a mission of sabotage. The church is called to a mission impossible. And we are here, the we are the church is bigger than CIA, KGB, and Mossad combined. We are here to do espionage. We are here to do sabotage. Spiritual warfare is not an option that is the sole mission of the church. See, somehow we are taught that when you become Christian, the enemy is going to attack you. So we always try to play defense, right? Now, that is one of the reasons many people don't want to talk about it, because somehow you talk, start talking about the enemy, then the enemy is going to attack us. Be a nice Christian, you know, go to church, put your money in the basket, you know, clap when the pastor preaches, and that, that's, a, you know, finally end up in heaven. That's what we think we are supposed to be called. No, like I said, spiritual warfare is the sole mission of the church, and the kingdom of God is not playing defense, but it is playing offense because kingdom of God is the aggressor in this, in this warfare. And the Son of Man came not to defend, but to destroy the work of the enemy. And in Matthew, like when <laughs> that familiar verse, Jesus told, you, you are Peter, but upon this rock I am going to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. The gates of hell will not overcome. What? And you probably heard about this. Many people don't get it. Because what do you mean by gates of hell? We always think about, oh, the kingdom, the, the kingdom of darkness is going to attack us and we are going to escape from that. But the, but the metaphor is very clear. 
gates of hell because the hell doesn't have a weapon. The hell only has defense. The enemy is playing defense. He has a gate. Nobody attacks with the gate. We attack against the gate. We are the aggressors. This rock, upon this rock, I build my church. And you are the rock that is going to pound on the gate of hell. And you are the aggressor. You are called for a warfare. You have a couple of missions. One, sabotage the enemy's plan. And another thing is to rescue, do rescue operation of the lost soul or the trapped soul inside the enemy territory. And if you don't accomplish that mission, don't call yourselves the church. This is a great club. This is a great place to be here on a Sunday morning. This is better than being in a bar. They're better than being in a movie theater. But this is not the church unless you are willing to take the weapons of warfare and do the fight. See, one of the problems when we talk about this is <laughs> the enemy is very good in hiding because the enemy is already defeated on the cross. So what he is trying to do right now is to hide. See, that's why we don't even... So C.S. Lewis, let me call C.S. Lewis again. C.S. Lewis in his book, Screwtape Letters, said this. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. So the first thing the enemy does is to do camouflage. Right? If you're a good uh, fighter, you know that you know, when, when the soldiers go to fight, they don't wear like a multicolored pinstrip so, uh, you know, suit or something like that, right? And they wear camouflage. They don't want to be identified. They want to be disguised, rather, right? So that is why the enemy made us believe that he doesn't exist. That is the first trick in his book. Whenever Christians or other people say that, oh, Satan or devil is a work of your imagination, that is the first success he has accomplished, particularly in the Western world. We have taught ourselves to believe that this is all some old school thinking. Now, that is one thing. Now, another point is that we can become a little too obsessed with the enemy. And now, there are some churches and there are some congregations that everything is the enemy. You might have heard about the devil made me do it kind of a philosophy, right? When my car breaks down, it's the enemy. When, if I have somebody have COVID, then that is the enemy. And everything is attributed to enemy. And this is called a worldview called animism. Animism is essentially where you see every physical phenomenon has a spiritual explanation, particularly from the Eastern world where I come from. You know, everything has a spirit. Everything in this world is being controlled by a spirit, and there we become so obsessed, and that is animism. And on the other side, in the Western world, we struggle with the opposite of it, which is materialism which is the opposite of animism, where every spiritual phenomenon has a physical explanation. So we don't talk about the demons. We talk about, I am fighting my own demons. 
You know, that's a psychological fog we create. Or we are fighting the demons of racism in this country. We are fighting the demons of capitalism or communism or whatever you want to say, right? Because we don't want to name it. Our worldview doesn't permit us to, because we wanted to take a spiritual phenomenon and turn it into, into a physical or material explanation for that. that. That is materialism and animism, two different sides of the coin. That's what C.S. Lewis said. But, you know, no other area of, I would say, illness that struggle with this dichotomy that we have created than mental illness. And I asked Bill Fairbanks to share that story intentionally today. There are many people who struggle with the various kind of mental disorders in our society. Now, first of all, I want to give you a disclaimer. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a clinical psychologist. So what I'm saying is my op opinion and observation. But it is very often we put them immediately into two brackets so that we can escape from the real reason. It's much easier for us to say somebody who is active, who is acting erratically to say they are possessed by some kind of demons. Oh, they are demon possessed, so then we can escape from that. Then it is for some pastors or some kind of spiritual people to take care of it. There is no mental illness, you know, there is no chemical imbalance, so there is no, uh, you know, the science has nothing to do with this kind of stuff. So we put them in this bracket and everything is demonic and all that on one side. Then on the other side, the pastors like us, who are afraid of this area, it's much easier for us to bracket them, oh, it's mental illness. You know, I would, it's much easier for me to give a call to Sega and ask him to deal with this issue than praying for that person and identify if there is multi-layered issue here, right? And this is the worldview, the animism on one side and materialism on the other side, and people who struggle with mental illness are often are more victim of this that more than many other people I know. Now, all I want to say is, see, See, every illness we suffer can have multiple causes. For example, you know, when, when a person has mental illness, there can be very clearly physiological issues, chemical imbalances. That's very real. You know, people have diabetes, people have cholesterol. In the same way, our body, body malfunctions in different ways and it comes out of different outcomes. So there is a physiological reality. It is not all demons. And if you have some common sense, you understand that. That's a physical uh, imp improper functioning or malfunctioning of our body. That's natural. But then we also know there are also psychological reasons for that. It can happen from somebody's trauma. PTSD, soldiers who are coming from war, they have seen some certain things horrible. They've had to do certain things horrible. So there is a, there is a psychological reason for that too. There is a physiological reason. There is a psychological reason. But if that is the case, why can't there be a spiritual reason as well? Why can't there be a spiritual reason as well? This is asked by Dr. Chuck Kraft, who was a professor at UCLA, then later became a professor at Fuller. Very smart man, very close to C.S. Lewis, I would say. 
He was very skeptical about all of this, but he, he started writing books about this. And this is an analogy, that's all I'm going to say. But he said, this is in his analogy, an ex exterminator who goes to a house to fix their problem with the rat infestation. Okay? A house is infested with rats. And the exterminator goes there, and he can kill the rats, no problem. You know, he's ready to kill the rats. But he looks at the house and says that, I can kill the rats, but the problem is that your house is so dirty. It's garbage everywhere. So even if I kill the rat, as long as the garbage is there, the rats will come back. You know, the rats always cling on to garbage. So you have to call somebody before I come in to clean the garbage. So there are two distinct functions. There's one, one, somebody has to come and clean the garbage, and somebody has to come and kill the rats. And he uses that to, uh, as an analogy to say that a counselor is somebody who can, who can understand the psychological issue or physiological issue can come, and that person has to clear the garbage. That's their duty, to clean the house, to clear the garbage. But that doesn't mean that the rat cannot be come, coming back. So then there has to be an exterminator who has to come and kill the actual rats. So my psychologist friend would always say, Matthew, this is the problem. You guys, you pastors, are always use mental illness as some kind of escapism. You are afraid to touch this. So you immediately call us, who are Christian counselors, deal with this problem because we don't know how to handle this. We can only clean the garbage, Matthew. You have to go and kill the rats. Do you get that? So anyway, the point I'm trying to make is, when it comes to the spiritual warfare itself, when it comes to the idea of enemy itself, I want us to have a more open and multi-layered understanding of the issue, otherwise we can be literally trapped into one of these two worldviews, whereas biblical worldview is not animistic, biblical worldview is not materialistic, biblical worldview assumes this cosmic warfare, and we have to find this dance between animism and materialism to understand what is happening in the Bible. I'm not going to take more time, but one thing, I'm going to give you some resources, okay? Because this week rooted, I'm going to expect some heated conversations. This, pro this week probably might be the most complicated. Now, this is a good thing I have done before. A couple of years ago, when we did the Illumine Us, a prayer service on Wednesday evenings, I did talk about the spiritual idea of spiritual warfare. And we happened to create five videos, each only 15 minutes or less, I believe. Now that is available in our YouTube page. I want all of you to go to YouTube and look for Lake Avenue Church page. If you haven't subscribed, make sure you subscribe to the YouTube uh, channel of Lake Avenue Church. And on the, the, same, the home page itself, you will see a playlist. Or go to playlist. And it says, Rooted Spiritual Warfare. There will, you will see five videos, each roughly 15 minutes. And I want you to watch this video along with your devotion. You remember the Rooted Devotion? There are five devotions. 
So each video, you watch one video with one devotion, so there will be a daily discipline part of this, so that you will understand some of the things I'm trying to say. I'm, I've tried not to use many of the things I shared in the class, so that will be completely new. I talk about the weapons of spiritual warfare. I talk about stronghold and all these complicated topics. So you can go and get that information, okay? That's one thing I want you to know. And second thing, I recommend this book by C.S. Lewis. And this is uh, not really, uh, not as popular as many other books, but this is my favorite book of C.S. Lewis. It's called Screwtape Letters. I don't know how many of you have read it. Screwtape Letters is basically a comedic. <laughs> it's comical, actually. It's a story of, a, of an older demon training a younger demon to how to trick Christians, how to trap Christians in spiritual warfare. And, uh, you know, for example, when, you, when they talk about the enemy, we, you have to go and destroy the enemy. They are talking about God as the enemy because it is written from the devil's perspective. It's fascinating. It's fantastic. So I'll recommend that if you can get this book and read it, it's funny, but it is, I will say, this is spiritual warfare for dummies. Okay? <laughs> from C.S. Lewis, spiritual warfare for dummies, screwed up letters. Now, there are a couple of other resources I want to give you. It will come on the screen. First, uh, we are doing something called an Infinity Summit, which we did last year. It is a summit on science and faith, science and religion. We did that last year, and this year, this is going to be specifically on spiritual warfare and mental illness. I promise that I won't talk. <laughs> we have experts who can talk about this, from various fields coming and doing that summit for us. And I want all of it, it's May 20th, and the website, we just, you know, it's only a basic information available. I just wanted to put it out there since I'm speaking this today, but you can go and register right now. Make sure that you use that, uh, uh, that resource. Now, the second thing, we have a counseling center that's the privilege that Lake Avenue has. Make sure that's the number you have, and make sure you call if you are feeling, I mean, that you are suffering from mental illness or anything other than that, you know, whatever you feel, feel free to call uh, their counseling center. And then we have our prayer line, of course, our prayer warriors, and I call them warriors because they are here to fight on your behalf and they are here to fight with you and to engage you in the spiritual warfare. So you can call that line too. Now, as I close, you know, one of the reasons I wanted Bill Fairbanks to share the story <laughs> is, now uh, let me tell you from my perspective <laughs> that story. So I joined 10 months ago as the senior pastor of the church. I had too many things uh, given to me at that time, the first four to five months. Uh, I had to bring down our budget by a million dollars and, you know, the covenant to the bylaw, it was, uh, sorry, bylaw to the covenant was a very hostile conversation. A lot of arrows coming at me, and I'm kind of, my res refuge was always Pete's Cafe at California, you know, and uh, so I would go there. I don't want to even sit here. I just want to go and, and work on some of the stuff. I create PowerPoints and all that kind of, because I'm from a corporate world too. Uh, so I, I try to synthesize some of these thoughts and make presentation for ministry council, all, all of that. So one day walks in, Mr. Bill Fairbanks. Uh, I, I've been, <laughs> somebody else warned me about him <laughs> before. 
And they said, Bill is a great guy, but he can be very obsessive about certain things. So be careful, you know, in a good way, in a good way. So he comes, Bill Fairbanks comes, and he takes a half an hour meeting with me, which ended up more than definitely half an hour. And he comes and opens his laptop and shows me a 30-point PowerPoint, 30-page PowerPoint. And I'm like, my goodness, I can't believe that. What's wrong? Like, I can look at another PowerPoint, and it is all about something called rooted. And he kept rooted, 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 and he speaks a mile a minute. I can't believe that he did such an eloquent way he was speaking. He was speaking a mile a minute. Before I catch on to what he is saying, he's a very smart guy, as you can see. His IQ is way, way above mine. And he keeps saying this, and I'm like, I'm trying to, I'm trying to survive here with all the other mundane stuff I do. I don't have any time to think about anything creative, rooted or whatever. I have no time to hear this. So, so in a while I said, Bill, okay, let me, let me. So then he kept saying that I've been trying to pitch to the leadership for the last seven years. I told this pastor, that pastor, nobody will take it. Nobody wanted this. So I'm trying this for the last seven years. So I'm sitting there, oh, no wonder. <laughs> no. <laughs> I don't want it either, Bill. <laughs> so, but I'm, I'm a little more tactical than many other pastors, I believe. When I see, you know, to be honest with you, when I go here from here to that door, at least three or four people come to me and tell me how we should run the church. You know, they, are, they have ideas, and, you know, I'm an idea person too, so I love idea people. So I know how to say no to the idea people. This is a magic word. Just say, Bill, I love this idea. Why don't you do it? <laughs> Normally when you say that, you will not see them for the rest of your life. Even if you walk through the aisle, they will hide. You know, they will not. So I said, Bill, great idea. Why don't you do it? Boy, was I wrong. <laughs> Was I wrong? <laughs> I'm telling you, and I'm not showing off my humility. In the last 10 months of my pastoral, you know, senior pastor tenure here, I have not spent even 5% of my time for something called rooted. I'm telling you, I'm not making this up. This bill went and recruited another bill called Bill Mead. Now, that's a dangerous combination. <laughs> Then they recruited all these people, and I was expecting, okay, maybe we'll have around 200 to 300 people sign up. And they said, we have 200 people signed up. I said, whoa, okay, great. No, 200 facilitators. I was thinking 200 to 300 people will sign up. We'll have around 20 to 30 people to lead the groups, and somehow we will manage, and Bill Fairbanks will leave me alone for, you know, for the rest of my pastorship. That's what I'm thinking. But you know what happened. We have over 200 facilitators signed up. Over 1,100 people are doing this. And I'm, I, I'm happy to take the credit. <laughs> See, when I look back to what happened at Pete's Cafe, now, 
in retrospect, I wonder, I wonder who was suffering with mental illness, Bill Fairbanks or Matthew John? Who was channeling the Holy Spirit in that conversation? Bill Fairbanks or Matthew John? I'm afraid to answer that question. And I want you to know that when God touches you, it is quite natural for you to be a little unnatural. When God possesses you, it is quite normal to be not normal. The prophets of the Bible had all kind of mental illness if you look at it from the material perspective. They live in two different realities. That's what we call schizophrenia. They were tuned to two different realities at the same time. That is the gifting and the curse that comes with the calling of God. And I want us to be very, very careful when we make judgments. I want us to be very careful when we try to put people in a bracket. You know, when I talk to the shepherds class here, I try to share with them some prayer requests that I, I don't share with other people. Because somehow I think that they are tuned to another reality way more than I am. Maybe that's what makes them a little socially awkward. Who knows, in their world, I am socially awkward. Because if you read the Bible, if you read the Bible, whenever there is God's manifested presence, people don't sit there and taking notes, like buttoned up. You, Book of Revelation, God appears. All the elders are buttoned up, ties, and Bible, and taking notes. No, they're prostrated like crazy people. They took out their, they took out their crowns, and oh my goodness, the glory of God has appeared. They were completely socially spiritually awkward in God's presence. What is awkwardness anyway? What is normal anyway in the presence of God? Would you close your eyes? Let's pray. Weapons of our warfare are not of flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We destroy everything, every lofty thing that raised up against the knowledge of God, taking every thought captive. Father, this battlefield that our mind is, the infiltration of the enemy that brings about thoughts and ideas. Today, we stand straight with our shoulders back Look at the face of the enemy and declare, 
May the Lord rebuke you, Satan. If you even dream about touching a single soul in this congregation, if you dream about stepping into this place, because the victory comes from the blood of the Lamb. In Jesus' name.